You are listening to the Make Art Manifesto, where together we demystify the creative process with some of the world's most imaginative makers. Today I'm talking to writer and artist Molly Crabapple. She is the author of Brothers of the Gun, an amazing memoir called Drawing Blood, which received global praise, and her reportage has been published in New York Times, Paris Review, Vanity Fair, Guardian, and New Yorker, and Rolling Stone. I've known Molly since the days of Dr. Sketchy's, which is this incredible anti-art school that she created at the ripe old age of 22 or 23, I think. The first thing I want to ask you is you have a really ballsy approach in terms of how you deal with criticism, and you seem to use it inside your work, sometimes quite literally. You seem to have almost turned it to your advantage. How do you integrate criticism into your process without getting kind of overwhelmed by it? I'm a writer in addition to being an artist. When you write something, you have to expect to be criticized and criticism is actually the, the lifeblood of it. It's, you know, criticism is discourse, it's debate in the public square and some of it's bullshit, but some of it sharpens you and makes you brighter and stronger. Because of that, I tend not to completely disregard criticism. I tend not to be like, oh, those are mean haters, I shouldn't look at them. Instead, I try to take it in stride and learn from it what I can. But I'm also a woman on the internet. And because I'm a woman on the internet, I get insane stuff sent to me, crazy, crazy stuff. Uh, theories that I'm conspiring with the CIA. Uh, pickup artists who are angry at me because I said that women are still fuckable after 30. All sorts of crazy death threats, rape threats, sexual fantasies, the whole thing. And these things in general, they don't actually scare me that much. They're almost like this strange and horrifying form of folk art, this sort of lichen that grows, at li lichen, lichen, how do, you, how do you say it, barnacles? It's, they're, these comments are the sort of lichen that grows on the internet and they're horrifying and fascinating and tell us terrible things about our society. And a lot of times they're kind of funny also, if you can look at them from a distance. You have a piece that incorporates both uh, you and Lola Montez, who is this radical 19th century dancer and courtesan, and I'm very excited to get to say the word courtesan. That to me is an incredible example of using criticism like you'd use a paintbrush or a pen, putting it onto the canvas. Can you talk about how that piece came about? So I did this piece where it was a giant cutout head of my own head on one side and then Lola Montez's head on the other side. And on each side, I wrote things that were written about us by our contemporaries, because lots of people didn't like Lola Montez either. I wrote things that were written about me by uh, Republicans who were angry that I criticized Bush, things that were written about me by extremely puritanical Marxists, by pickup artists, by one guy who, when I was 23, was really angry that I defriended him on MySpace and wrote me uh, dozens of letters about how he was going to cut me to death with broken glass, all in caps, too. I've never seen the, the word fuck have so many Ks in it. And I calligraphed these all over the piece. And in some ways, it was really like making a totem, like taking these words that were usually meant to be pretty hurtful and decontextualizing them and putting them into something that I owned and that I controlled. It sort of artistically harkens back to, uh, you know, when Kathleen Hanna from Bikini Kill wrote slut and wrote all these other th insults that were hurled at, at her over her body. It's a way of owning things that are meant to wound you. So you just described yourself as a writer and an artist, but 
uh, as someone who's known you for a while, I tend to think of you as a world builder as well. Someone who created this luxurious universe called Dr. Sketchies, which you can describe probably a lot better than I can. But it's a unique approach in that you made a world that you could then populate with your art and also the art of so many other people. God, I was 22 years old. I was so fucking young, man. I founded Dr. Sketchies when I was 22. I worked uh, during college as an artist's model, among other jobs. And the classes were so boring and they were so objectifying, but not like in the sexy way that they say objectification, but in like the really boring way where you're like a table or an elbow anatomy demonstration. And I was way too narcissistic for that. I didn't want to be a fucking elbow anatomy demonstration. Also, I had these brilliant, brilliant, beautiful friends, these men and women from the burlesque world who were working as life models, but their amazing personas weren't being celebrated. And I was like, what if you took life modeling and you restored all of the decadence and persona and glamour that I associated with you know, Paris in the 1890s? And you had it in a bar, you had it in an atmosphere where the models could talk back where there is equality between the artists and models, where the model wasn't supposed to be this like distant, faraway thing just because she was naked. And so Dr. Sketchies was born. Initially, me and a friend started it, but she quit fairly soon because she realized it was a harebrained scheme. And I ran it myself uh, ever since with a crew of helpers. Almost immediately after Dr. Sketchies was founded, people online were like, man, New York is so cool. You know, Utah sucks. Uh, wherever I live sucks. Why isn't there anything cool like there is in New York? And I found this such a fucking cop out. I was like, make, make cool things in your place. There's nothing that frustrates me more than people who uh, sort of tenuously dream and don't do. So I wrote up a little manual and within a few weeks, you know, based basically on posting flyers in LJ Illustrator communities, people had started Dr. Sketchies in a few cities. I don't run Dr. Sketchies anymore. I'm too busy for it, but my assistant does. And right now it's in, I think, 140 cities around the world. We've had events in Shanghai, in Lima, Peru, in Croatia, in, in Australia. We've had, during New, In New Zealand, we had events at a women's prison there. I'm so deeply proud of everything that we've done with Dr. Sketchies, and it taught me so much about just learning how to make big things happen when you don't think you're the sort of person who's supposed to be able to make big things. I think a lot about the idea of finding your voice and finding the right medium that best expresses what you're curious about. And it feels like the political element of your work has become a much bigger focal point. Was that a considered approach on your part or do you think the art just evolved in that direction all by itself? I've always been a political person. My dad is a Marxist, and even though I don't consider myself a Marxist, I grew up with, I grew up being in a household that was like that, that was very skeptical of the dominant lens through which we view society. However, I used to think that doing political work in my art would make it kind of preachy and boring. I didn't really like the political art that I saw. I probably wasn't educated enough in all the awesome political art, but what I saw, I had sort of stereotyped as very didactic and dull and talking down to people. And so I would just give money to causes that I liked, or I would go to marches, or I would just do you know more participatory things. I would make phone calls or whatever. But then when Occupy happened and I saw how it was being portrayed in the media, in a very negative and bullshit way it was being portrayed in the media, 
I felt like it was a moment where if you did support it, you should take sides and you should be publicly out about it. And because my skill is as an artist, as opposed to, you know, being an organizer or any, anything else useful in the world, I uh, did art about Occupy. And then since then, I have loved the power that my art has to take me around the world, to let me see things that I wouldn't ordinarily be able to. A lot of people talk about how art is how they access this world inside their head. But for me, art was always how I connected with other people. It was this way of communion, especially when I was younger and I felt like I couldn't speak to other people, when I felt like this awkward weirdo in the corner. So after Occupy, I was able to use my art journalistically. I've drawn snipers in Tripoli for the New York Times. I've sketched at migrant worker camps in Abu Dhabi. I've been to Syria and drawn refugee camps there. I've been to Guantanamo Bay. And through it all, it was like I was using my sketchbook to gobble up the world and see the things that I wasn't supposed to. I know this is burying the lead a little bit, being that we just talked about how Occupy kind of shifted your perspective and allowed you to illuminate uh, these uncomfortable things. But what do you think about the idea that artists have a responsibility to make the invisible visible? Is that the role of an artist in society? What's the role of the artist in society? What's the role of any damn human in society? What's the role of a carpenter in society or a musician or a kid? I mean, I think we all have responsibility to the people around us, know our community, the people who love us. I mean, who else is gonna have our back? Certainly not any sort of larger power structure. I think the responsibility of the artist is to try to make things as beautiful or at least interesting as they can and to not be a fucking liar. Baron Story, one of my favorite artists and all-around humans, has a quote that the artist pays back his freedom by serving as a witness, which feels a lot like what you're saying. I love that Baron Story quote. I think that there's this compulsive human desire to capture what we've been through. And if we've been through trauma, very often we want to capture that. We want to stab that down. You see this with drawings that are done out of prisons or you know, out of internment camps. There was, in um, the 1940s, when America interned Japanese Americans, there was this brilliant illustrator who was in those camps, and she did, I forget, the, I forget the name of the book, but she did a brilliant sort of almost graphic novel illustrated memoir of what it was like. Art can steal things back from censorship. It can take things from the memory hole that people meant to hide away, the people meant to say, oh, we did this thing to you, but it never happened. And art can yank it back and say, yeah, it did. So I feel like curiosity drives almost everything we do creatively. Um, Where Occupy is concerned, do you think that that movement provided a path towards something you hadn't really explored yet? And tactically, did that sharpen the work? Did it make you better? I draw obsessively. Because I draw obsessively, because I'm drawing 14 hours a day, I just get better. Just the same way that if you run every day, you get faster. What Occupy did was it took me from drawing this like very stylized, you know, Baroque sort of world in the past that, that I loved and that I continue to love, to trying to draw the present with all of the ugliness and rawness of that. It let me draw in a way that was much freer and much more painful in some ways that was much more direct and much faster. When I was doing work around Occupy and later with my journalistic work, it was almost like I was stabbing things down, you know, get, getting getting them right at the moment that they happened rather than just laboring over ruffles in my studio like I had done before. 
And I, I love burlesque. I love beautiful women. I love glamorous, you know, underworld, underworld nightlife creatures. And I still view those as my tough and glittery muses, and I still draw them all the time. But Occupy sort of liberated me to explore a larger world than that. I want to pull back a bit and talk about the Dickensian origins of Molly Crab Apple. You once told me if you were in prison, you'd draw pictures in the fucking dirt. And a lot of the time, that compulsion is simply how you get better. That level of grit and tenacity is the only way you're going to make a life for yourself in the arts. Is drawing 14 hours a day something you've always done? I think I just have this vision of a baby Molly drawing cave paintings with a stick. Like, am I close? I've been drawing since I was four years old. When I was a little child, I would be so frustrated that my hands didn't work the way that I wanted them to that I would scream on the floor until I nearly passed out. My mom is an artist, and she's a really badass artist, too. I think she's much more talented than I am. And because she was an artist, when I was a kid, she would look at my work and she'd be like, nah, that's not how a nose works. Your sky doesn't sit on the top of the page like that. You know, she got a lot of childish bullshit out of my system when when I was drawing when I was young. But I, it's, it's just what I did. I mean, I drew because I had to. I drew because it was like picking scabs or like, I don't know, doing drugs or something. I also drew because it was the only way that I could talk to people when I was growing up. I drew pictures of the popular girls so that they wouldn't beat me up. It was kind of my bribe to them. I, I draw because it's what I am. It's in my fucking DNA. And if I was paralyzed, I would wear one of those headsets and draw in with my eye movements and light. I mean, I... I just, I draw, I can't do anything else. So as a photographer and now as a writer, I find that I kind of pull inspiration from almost everything but the medium that I'm working in. So if I'm shooting something, I'll look at painters and illustrators. And if I'm writing something, a lot of the time I'll like watch a movie or read a comic, which, you know, kind of lives in the same world, but isn't of the same world. Um, and I love that shit. I just, I love talking to people about the, I, I guess, more kind of nonlinear lateral movements that inform their creativity. Uh, where do you, you draw your inspiration from? Um, I, every, everywhere. I, I read constantly. I have photographers I love. I love the photographer Clayton Cupid and his sort of voracious, devouring way that he's viewed life and the way that he uh, doesn't draw distinctions between different genres of work. Clayton might shoot these really brutal portraits of people right after Katrina and then shoot this really slick fashion work and he doesn't see a contradiction between those things. He just sees the world as being fodder for his eye. Philosophically, that was a major influence on me. Then everything, I don't know, random scraps of visual of visuals. I remember I went to the Alexander McQueen exhibit and he had this dress that was printed with like a gold brocade pattern. And then as the as it got lower on the dress, the brocade, uh, the gold pattern started to melt and so and drip. And I was looking at that and I was like, what a perfect tension, right? Between this nitpicky, beautiful, tight little design and then this violent melting chaos. And I, I really tried to bring that to my own work. I, I was a bit obsessed with that. At another point, I was um, making silk screens, or no, it wasn't. I was there were projections, like you know, when you print out, when you do a projection, you print out your image on mylar, so you have this like very um, small sort of lacy black and white image that's on a clear clear mylar, and I uh, I put it over my eyes, like I was looking at it, and then I caught a glimpse of myself in mirror in the mirror, and I was like, oh, it looks like lace. 
then I was like, wouldn't it be amazing to do lace that concealed all these hidden images, perhaps a whole other commentary on the main image that at first you think is pattern work, but then you realize it's all these scenes. I don't know, I just look at everything and then things strike me, like my head, I've never been one for like grand planning or thinking of big cohesive things. My head is just this fermenting petri dish of influences and things stick. We have a difficult relationship to creators that reach a certain level of success. Uh, I think we mythologize them, which is very slippery because then in order to succeed, we have to become myths as well, which is a pretty fucking high bar because we don't see the failures. We only see the sizzle. We don't know Neil Gaiman as the guy who couldn't afford to pay his electricity bill. We only see Sandman, but failure and rejection is how we grow. God, I've had so many projects that went nowhere. I've been rejected so many times. When I was, I guess I was 19, I was so excited because I got a, a portfolio review at the head of the New York Times Review of Books. And I was like, man, I'm gonna make it. He's gonna realize how fucking brilliant I am. And he flips through my portfolio. And it was, it was crap, I mean, to be honest, like I don't think he was wrong. I'm not blaming this man, but he flips through my, my crappy portfolio and he looks at it and he looks at me and he's like, we only hire intelligent artists. I was like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna get into the New York Times book review. That's that. And for years and years in my early career, it was just nothing but people slamming the door in my face. And the truth is I sucked. Like in my early career, I wasn't brilliant. I was not one of these people who's like sheer genius from the gate at all. In fact, I wouldn't say that I got like tolerably decent until about six or seven years ago. But I think instead of talent, I had this natural do or die stubbornness where I just didn't care. I, I was like, I'm, I'm gonna be an artist even if you think I suck, even if I do suck, it doesn't matter. I'm just gonna fucking do this. I'm going to bash through this until eventually these walls come down. And that's eventually what happens. One day you wake up and you're like, huh, all that bullshit that I've been dealing with for so long, it's gone. Wow, and I didn't even notice it faded away. One of the things I've been thinking about in terms of how to end a show about the creative process and the art life is to ask working artists such as yourself who have chopped their way a little further through the forest is to give an artist pep talk, like advice for the young art monsters out there sharpening their machetes. People who want to express themselves but have been told that art is a backup plan at best, that there's no security, that it's too unrealistic, and on and on and on. What would you say in the way of encouragement? Everyone should be fucking creative. Um, everyone should feel like that if they want to, they could you know, try music or that they could try drawing or they could write the thoughts in their heart. Like That is not something that should be beaten out of anyone. It is your human entitlement. And uh, don't listen to anyone who says that you that you shouldn't try to express yourself. In terms of artists, if I was giving advice to the young monsters who want to engage in the fucked up career path that I've had, I would tell them to be as idealistic and as loving and as nurturing as they possibly can to their creativity, to their soul, to what they truly believe in, and to be the most brutal, cynical, and mercenary fuck in the world to, the, to everyone else. You talk sometimes about the myth of the starving artist. The reason that the myth of the starving artist is maintained is because it 
is actually really, really helpful to everyone who works with artists because it lets them pay them less. The myth of the starving artist is maintained the same reason that there's the myth that if you work in a caring profession like nursing, you should be paid less because it's actually uh, way better for hospital bosses to pay nurses less. It's way better for um, various people who work with artists to pay artists less. Bosses always want to pay people less. And if you can find a convenient cultural mythos to justify not paying people, you're going to fucking cling to that mythos. But what you can do is you can bring uh, beauty and joy to your life and the lives of those around you. You can take the things that you are good at and or that you do every day and you can bring them attention and love and rigor and you can make them better and you can make other people's lives better. And I think that that is so much more important than privileging the idea that visual artists or artists are better people. No, it's we can all be better people by just doing what we love or doing what we do better.